Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. You're listening to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me as always, MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. Matt, hello. Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm doing great. Hey, we're going to jump right into our guest this week. Uh, he is on a book tour, and he's a friend. Uh, just yesterday, he, along with uh, Sam Miller, put out a book called The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Uh, and it's a fascinating tale of how two self-described nerds, and I say that with all the love in the world because I consider myself a nerd as well, took over a professional baseball team and uh, tried to run it according to the, their best uh, data-driven ideas. So on the phone with us, Ben Lindbergh. Ben, how are you? Hey, guys. I'm good, thanks. So, Ben, you and Sam uh, wrote this book that just came out yesterday, which is getting great reviews, and it's really about how you took over the uh, independent league Sonoma Stompers out in California and kind of used the lessons learned uh, from baseball perspectives where you both have or, or previously have been and uh, kind of ran with that. So just tell us a little bit about how, when you guys got this idea, you got hooked up with the Sonoma team and why specifically them and how hard was it to sell them on it? Yeah, we uh, we were talking about this idea on our podcast. It kind of came up a few years ago in an interview we were doing with Dan Evans, the former GM of the Dodgers, and he at the time was trying to revive an independent league team. And we sort of jokingly suggested you know we could we could take it over for you if you'd like and we were kind of kidding but when we said it out loud it sounded really appealing all of a sudden and Dan didn't laugh us off so his uh, his idea to revive an independent league didn't get off the ground at the time but we kind of clung to this idea for a year or two until we were contacted by Tim Livingston who is the broadcaster and does media relations for the Sonoma Stompers in Sonoma California the Pacific Association is the name of the league and he heard our podcast, and he heard us talking about how we hadn't really been to an independent league game, and he said, come on out, and Sam went out there and liked the people and liked the place and pitched them on us on this idea, and they were happy to go along with it. They, they knew our work, and, of course, every team at that level is looking for publicity, and so they thought this would be a fun experiment, and, and so did we. I love that Dan Evans had a part in this. He was, he's been a guest on this show. Uh, yeah. I, I met him in person recently. He's a, he's a fascinating guy. So when you get out there, obviously you guys come from the world of advanced stats, um, but I'm guessing there wasn't that much available in the Pacific Association. So what stats were available when you were just looking at the previous year's team? Was it literally just like batting average and RBI or even that? Yeah, there was very little. We're so used to having just all of this data at our command that we can just reach out and how fast someone hit the ball or how fast someone threw the ball or how much it spun. And it was really kind of a, a shock to 
almost travel back in time a few decades when we got out there because really all there was was basic stats. There was some play-by-play from the previous season, but it was very messy and sort of unreliable. And we found that before we could analyze anything, we kind of had to generate our own data. And that was more difficult than we had anticipated. So we did partner with Sport Vision, and, and they installed PitchFX and HitFX in our park, which was unheard of in an independent league team. And so that was pretty cool to have that at our disposal. And then we also, for the road games, we sort of set up an advanced scouting network, and we had volunteers, people who just kind of wanted to spend their summer doing baseball stuff, go out to games, and we had a radar gun, and we had cameras set up, and we had some charting software on our laptops, and we just go to every game and gather as much information as we could and eventually got to the point where we could, you know, show our players their video from the previous day or tell them how hard they were throwing or show them the opposing starter coming up and tell them, you know, what pitches he throws and what percentage of the time he throws them and, you know, basic stuff like that that's at the major league level kind of taken for granted, but we really had to build it from the ground up and it, it gave us a greater appreciation for how much work goes into the information that we take for granted. Now, it sounds like the most difficult part about all this for you was was getting buy-in from the players. Uh, you know, you have all this great information, and it sounds like a lot of them weren't really interested in it. So were you kind of surprised that that was the reaction, even at, like, basically the lowest level of professional baseball, that they had such a, a difficult time with that? Yeah, we thought people would be more receptive at this level just because, you know, they're far away from the major leagues, and we figured they might be willing to tinker more so than someone who's already made it there. and. And that maybe was the case. Uh, you know, we always expected there would be some pushback on this stuff. And to some extent, we wanted that. And we were looking forward to that because we're kind of in this Internet echo chamber where we all think we know everything about baseball and everyone else is wrong. And we never actually get to put those ideas in practice and see how they, they work in the real world. And so part of that is, well, this might be a good idea in a spreadsheet or in theory, but if you actually have to sell it to players and you know, convince them that it's a good idea and hear their objections. And that sort of stuff is the, the kind of thing that people in our position don't often get the chance to do. And so I think it was kind of a, a give and take. You know, we were in the dugout every day during games and in the clubhouse before games and sort of breaking that barrier between the front office and stat heads and the people on the field. And I think it took some time for people to get used to that. We were kind of treading on territory where you know, stat heads usually aren't allowed to roam. So uh, it took some time for them to get used to us, and it took some time for us to figure out kind of how to convey our message and how to communicate it because you can't really just go in there and start diagramming, you know, spreadsheets on the on a whiteboard or something. You have to sort of sell your ideas and, and make them into a, a narrative, and then people will buy in. Yeah, I think we learned uh, that in the, the big league level. You know, every team's got this data, but the teams that are really the most successful are the teams that have figured out a way to effectively communicate it to the players, like the Pirates, for example, uh, mm-hmm. really stand out like that. And, and so kind of on that note, it sounds like the manager also gave you some pushback as well. And so I'm, I'm curious, did you have the power, if you wanted to, to make a, a managerial change and to someone maybe more analytic friendly? And do you wish you had done so, if so? Well, we did, and uh, that's kind of a a constant tension in the first half of the book, and and I won't give away how we resolved it. But, you know, in theory, we sort of had absolute power to sign players or to get rid of players or or even a manager or a coach. But in practice, there's sort of a limit to how you can wield that power. You know, we didn't want to come in there and just dictate everything because we figured we'd alienate everyone, and maybe we didn't know what we were doing anyway, and we should (laughs) sort of take it slow and and listen to what these people had to say. And so, yes, there there was some tension there. Uh, and, and you'll see that over the course of the book, there was really an evolution in how we 
worked with our manager, and we sort of got to experience both the, the best and the worst, really. We, we got to experience the full, you know, money ball throwing a chair through the wall kind of interaction, and then the, you know, the modern, enlightened, hurdle pirates sort of example where everyone's working and, and pulling in the same direction. Mike, uh, sorry, Ben, I'm like 100 pages in, you've already spoiled like half your book for me, so thanks a lot. Um, no, because it's interesting, actually, reading the book, I sort of noticed early on that I felt like um, Phelan Lantini, that's the name of the, the, the manager that you hired before the season, and it definitely seemed like, even from, from where I am, about 100 pages, like the manager that you seemed like you hired very quickly, it seemed like the impression of, you had of him from when you hired him to, you know, the end of spring training was already starting to change. And I sort of made me realize that, like, I feel like that probably happens now where sometimes maybe in the big leagues where manager, teams hire managers thinking one thing and then pretty quickly when they see the way he acts on the field, it's someone yeah. very different. Yeah, and that's probably why, you know, managers go through this battery of interviews and all-day interviews and come back for three different interviews because you want to be sure, but you never really can be sure, especially if it's a new manager. And Phelan was a player. He was our center fielder, and, and that was a big part of why we wanted him. We thought we'd, he'd be one of the best players in the league, but this was his first experience as a manager, and so there was no way to project that. And, you know, we were able to use statistics and spreadsheets to – signed some undervalued players and, and that worked out in many cases, but we didn't have a spreadsheet that could tell us, you know, who'd hire for, for hitting coach or pitching coach or manager. And so we kind of had to go by feel there. And to the extent that we had difficulties, it was totally on us just, you know, making counterproductive decisions. Uh, from what I understand, uh, you and Sam, your, your co-writer, actually sat in the dugout every game, not up in the, uh, the quote-unquote box or, or whatever the stadium might have. And I don't think you guys pushed very hard on in-game decision-making, like, you know, call this play here, bring in this pitcher. Uh, do you kind of wish that you had done that more, or is that just too tough given the, uh, the politics of the, the dugout? Yeah, it was tough. That was something we sort of negotiated as the season went on because at first it, it really was, you know, when it's sort of your team in a sense. I mean, everyone knows the feeling of sort of watching on TV and saying, why isn't he going to get this guy? Why isn't he bringing in this pitcher? And in this case, it was really, you know, very a powerful, visceral feeling because it was that, but, you know, times 10 because this was actually the team that we helped put together. And theoretically, we had the power to make those moves. And we did in some cases, you know, tried during the game to say, why don't we do this? Why don't we do that? And it didn't go over particularly well, which is understandable. I think, you know, our manager didn't want to look like he was a puppet getting his strings pulled by these two nerds who'd never been in baseball before. And so we sort of had to work out a way to do it where we could kind of communicate what we wanted, but not make it look like it was just coming down from on high. So we would sort of talk before the game and kind of lay out the, the scenarios and what would happen and what we would do in certain situations. And that was just a, a better way to do it for everyone involved. Now, obviously, you were trying to, to use numbers and add data and, and really bring some intelligence to the decision-making as far as putting the roster together. But, you know, obviously, you get to know these guys. So was, was it hard for you to not have a bias towards the players you added as opposed to the guys that were there or the guys that the manager wanted to bring in? Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, if only just because the players who we signed were naturally more receptive to us and to, to our methods, because even if they didn't totally understand all the calculations that went into why we signed them, they understand that they wouldn't have had a job in professional baseball if not for whatever, you know, numerical wizardry we were doing. And so I think that kind of predisposed them to like us. And so that made it easier for, for us to talk to them and for that back and forth to happen. But that was kind of part of what we wanted to experience because, you know, we've played fantasy baseball and just 
making changes to your team is as easy as clicking add or drop and it's no muss, no fuss, and you don't have to look the guy in the face when you cut him. And we had to do that. You know, we had to be in the room, and it was really difficult and painful. And there were times where we probably should have done something. You know, the stats should have dictated that we had made a change, but it was just really hard to convince ourselves to do that, to know that you have to look that person in the eye and sort of kill their dreams. Ben, what would you say was the most successful data-driven decision that uh, you guys put in place? I think uh, a lot of the players that we signed, we ended up signing a, a few of the best pitchers in the league, and they were guys who had been passed over. The team had drafted them. No other professional team had wanted them, and they were just sort of virtually retired. And, you know, for whatever reason, they were small or they didn't throw particularly hard or they threw sidearm or something about them was just unusual or out of the mold. And, you know, it was your kind of classic money ball thing just on an even lower level. Uh, we were able to use college statistics and look at guys who were really productive at that level and say, well, they might not be prospects, they might not make the big leagues, but at this level of professional baseball, we think they could get out. And in many cases, we were vindicated. We weren't always right, but there were some guys that we can look back on and say, you know, these guys were really successful and they had one of the best summers of their lives. And if we hadn't come along, they just would have been doing something else entirely. So that was a really rewarding feeling. Uh, kind of flipping that on its head, what sort of uh, sabermetric ideal did you come in and think this is really going to work out well and then have it really not work out well? <laughs> yeah, that's probably a, an even longer list. I mean, <laughs> I think uh, there were certainly guys we signed who didn't work out so well. You know, maybe we overlooked something or we overvalued something about their college performance and undervalued something else that was important. And, you know, we really wanted to have a flexible pitching staff, just some guys are starters and some guys are relievers, but it kind of is, you know, it goes back and forth and you kind of put in the best pitcher for that situation rather than sort of defining them with very clear labels. And that was something we tried to implement and it was just really a season long sort of tug of war about how you use your pitchers. And, and we found that, you know, people on the team and whether it was the pitchers themselves or the managers, they kind of want to know what their role is and they're happier that way. And you, you sort of have to overcome that or, or possibly find that it's not worth overcoming that because, you know, if guys aren't happy with what their role is, then they might not perform as well as your numbers would suggest that they do. So that was kind of a, a season long struggle for us. So if you had the chance to do it again, what would you do differently? Would you just not be as honest with the players about all the nerdery and just try to keep it simple? Or what's kind of the, the big thing you would change? Yeah, I think that's a big part of it. A lot of it would just be communication. And a lot of it would just be sort of acting like we belonged. You know, we were really tentative at first. We didn't want to overstep our bounds. We didn't want to scare anyone off. And so I think as we went on, we sort of found that maybe the best way to have authority is just to sort of act like you have it. You know, there was a there was one game where a bench coach from an opposing team just sat in our dugout and he sort of came in and he said, I'm with you guys. And he was looking for a job. He wanted to be hired by our, by our team, but he didn't have one. He just sat there and said, I'm with you guys. And no one questioned him. He sat there the entire <laughs> game and then he left the next day. And it was just like, well, I guess all you have to do is say that you belong and act like you belong. And 
everyone will more or less take your word for it. So I think we'd have an easier time doing it the second time just because we, we did have that one season under our belt and we'd be a little less tentative. No, I'm just trying to imagine a big league bench coach sitting on the other side and saying, yep, I'm <laughs> yeah. here now. It's, it's, it's like yeah, that, that, that wild card game, the <laughs> the game a couple years ago when that woman wandered into the uh, Pirates dugout. Yeah, she's just there. <laughs> she's just there. It's like if, if you act like you're there, then you belong there. This is basically right. how I feel whenever I'm wandering around the tunnels of a ballpark with a press pass. Like, yeah, I belong here just as long exactly. as... Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Um, great stuff. Ben Lindbergh of 538, just the uh, the writer of The Only Rules It Has to Work About the Sonoma Stompers with Sam Miller. Uh, buy it and follow Ben. He's doing the book tour right now. Ben, thanks so much. Thank you. So that was really fascinating. Uh, I've got the book. I'm not through it yet like yourself, but I can't wait well, to get through it. I'm because... only I'm a third of it through. I, I'm, I mean, I'm sure you'll have the same feeling that I'm having and a lot of people. It's, there's just like jealousy as you're reading it of just like, man, I wish I could try this. Yeah, exactly. And especially like learning the lessons from it. Or you can kind of, if you had the opportunity to say, okay, I might do this or that differently. Uh, but it's cool just to have the, the, the idea. And um, I think we're seeing that with some big league teams, not necessarily hiring, you know, baseball practice writers uh, to run the team but you know for example the Phillies have taken a total overhaul of their kind of analytical outlook where it used to be Rudimara who was not really looked at from a, a data-friendly perspective and now it's Matt Klintak and uh, I think we talked about the Phillies a couple weeks ago and we're still talking about them which says a lot about how well that rebuild is going right it's May and we're still talking about the Phillies even though I don't think they're going to keep up what they're doing because their offense not so great so far but the pitching staff pitching staff has been phenomenal and it's still phenomenal it is it's uh, I Aaron Nola, to me, is kind of, I don't want to say the best story of the early season, but he may be my favorite story of the early season. You know, I made a comment to you last week when he was pitching in a day game. Um, we were here in the office, the game was on. And I was like, his, his delivery reminds me of someone. It was like, there's something, there's this smoothness to it. And you said it, it was El Duque. And he sort of has this El Duque thing, and he comes in, he's got the low arm angle, he puts the, the knee in b- below his glove, he's got the low arm angle, throwing this just filthy breaking, breaking ball. Um, and he looks to be not just good, but like potential like ace. Well, I'm glad you said that because I remember when he got drafted a couple years ago, number seven overall, I think it was, and he was seen as being somewhat of a safe pick, right? Like it, it, unless he got hurt, it seemed like he was most likely going to be a good major league starter, but probably not going to be like that next level ace. And it seems like not only is he safe, he's got that that high end you know possibility because he's looking like it so far. We we can um we can look at the run value leaderboard for curveballs, and I, I stole this directly from Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs today. Uh, he is. His curveball, plus 9.5 runs. That's the best in baseball. Second is Jared Eikhoff, his teammate, plus 3.2 runs. And so what that means is it basically looks at, you know, different run expectancies for different counts, different situations, and the success that a pitcher has uh, in those situations. And his is three times higher than any other curveball, which is amazing. And what's fascinating about it is he is the, the sort of the profile, because as I mentioned, he sort of has that low arm angle. And usually you don't see right-handed starters succeed is, unless they throw really hard, like Max Scherzer. But Nola's throwing in the low 90s. So it's he just kind of he's kind of his own type, you know. He he doesn't fit in like a box of your typical um, number one starter by any stretch of the imagination. And he's not quite there yet. Obviously, he's got to show a little more, you know, prove it over a longer stretch of time. But the early performance and he is impressive. Not to mention Eikhoff, who you also mentioned, and Vincent Velasquez. All three of who are in the top twenty-one percent of I'm sorry, top twenty-one of strikeout percentage. All three of them. Uh, and then the Phillies overall have the highest strikeout percentage of baseball at 27.2. The Cubs are the second best at 25.4. So you're buying. You're buying. Well, the one thing that, that I find particularly interesting about Nolan Velasquez is they're also both in the top 10 of K percentage minus walk percentage. Yes. So they're basically, this is not just strikeouts. This is strikeouts and with command. Walks. Yeah. So that's, yes, I, I'm buying those too. Okay. I believe it. Now we got to go to the Phillies bullpen. 
All right, this has been my, my favorite story of the week. Hector Neris, who is a guy I don't think either of us knew very much about three or four weeks ago, even though he did appear for the Phillies last year. He has the most absurd split-finger fastball in baseball, I think, right now. Uh, after striking out three guys last night, he got 27 strikeouts in 16 innings, but we can do better than that. 276 pitchers have thrown 10 innings this year. He has the lowest contact percentage in baseball, the lowest. Nobody generates less contact than he does, 56%. Uh, which is amazing to me because he's this guy like, you know, we look at the starters, first-round draft pick, uh, Ken Giles trade, Cole Hamels trade. Like, these are big origins. And this guy was just a, a free agent kind of kicking around the system. He was, like, fine, okay last year. And all of a sudden he comes up this year and he's absolutely dominant because of this pitch. Yeah, and, you know, he's just another one of these interesting players, pitchers on the Philly staff. And, you know, another reason why, like, they look like, again, They've been outscored by 22 runs, so their their above 500 record is a bit of a is a bit of a fluke. They probably have the second worst offense in baseball right now. But you could easily, you already see the makings of a good pitching staff, a competitive pitching staff, and some some position players: Franco, Herrera, J.B. Cropper on the way. Where it's like, wow, this could this could come. And they have money. Like yes. that's a team that can spend not not this year, but maybe next year. Like, that's you're right. They've, that's probably half of a good pitching staff already, and you know more on the way. And you wrote about another rebuilding team this week with a very interesting trade tr- trade chip. And why don't you tell us about this player? Brian Braun. We've talked about the Brewers a lot, too, because like, I think we like these rebuilding teams. They're interesting. Uh, I think a lot of people look at Ryan Braun and think that he has just collapsed, right? Because he's not the guy who was winning you know, the MVP award uh, 2011. Obviously, he's had his off-field issues, and that's co- sort of hurt his image a little bit. But if you look at his hitting over the last calendar year, we like to use weighted runs created plus here, where 100 is average. Over the last calendar year, 142 weighted runs created plus. That means it's been 42% above league average. Uh, his career mark, 143, which basically means he's hitting exactly like Ryan Braun always hits. So he's not really fallen off. He's just kind of the same guy, just a lot quieter because, you know, the Brewers aren't doing so well, and obviously he's not the most popular guy. But when you look at him in 2016, he's tied for 16th in weighted runs created plus with Anthony Rizzo. I mean, 16th is pretty good. He's still a really productive player. Yeah, and I mean, he's got well, five years, including this year, five years and $95 million left on his contract. I mean, you put you know put the the PD pass aside because it's now been a couple of years and he's still been productive, and you could easily see why he'd be a very attractive trade trade chip. And there are a number of teams who are trying to compete, who could really use Ryan Braun. I think I think our thoughts both went to the exact same place, right? And that's the Chicago White Sox because you look at the White Sox who are off to an amazing start. As you remind me every single morning because you picked the White Sox before the season on this very show. So good job on that so far. Uh, but they're, they're an interesting team because they are super win now, right? They've got the core of, of Sale and Jose Barreo and Quintana and those guys. They're, they're built for this year next year. Uh, they've got a, a weird outfield and a weird DH because Avisel Garcia is just the, whatever the opposite of worked out over the last two years. That's him. They have a big hole there. They do tilt a little bit to the right-handed side. They could probably use a lefty bat, but you, know, you can only come up with so much that's available out there. So he's a perfect fit there. Um, I think the Angels are a perfect fit. Like They have a huge black hole in left field, but they don't have a lot of prospect talent. They don't seem to have the budget. So uh, even though he's a Southern California guy, I don't know that that's really going to work out. And then I also, uh, I saw an interesting one that said the Red Sox, because they're playing Brock Holt in left field. And Brock Holt's been pretty good, but he's probably more useful as a utility guy. And you put Ryan Braun there bouncing balls off the monster, and then maybe he can play some DH next year and the years after when, when David Ortiz is he, gone. Possibly a fit there. He has a limited no-trade clause, which obviously would complicate. Um, can be always it, bought out. Yes, for sure. There's always ways to get around those things, but it certainly would complicate any deal. But um, I think there's a very good chance he ends up being the, um, I would say, the most intriguing player in the trade market, but among them. 
it's, it's going to be a weird trade market, right? Because you look at the American League, all those teams think they can compete, so we don't know if anybody's going to be selling. And in the National League, we know there are teams who will be selling, but some of those, those teams don't have a lot that they can actually sell right now. They're either not competitive for a reason or like they've got these young players who they're obviously not going to move, so it's hard to look at those teams and say, oh, they're obviously going to sell because they might not have the pieces to do so. Yeah, the, you know, the one clear seller in the American League may end up being the Yankees. Might up being the Yankees. <laughs> we talked about that this morning. Araldis Chapman might get, they might get more for Araldis Chapman than they gave up for him, <laughs> which is fascinating to me. And that's going to be such a, a big like thing when that happens. It's going to be amazing. <laughs> well, plenty of time to talk about the trade deadline. I want to ask you about another player, maybe as any good, as maybe as good as any player in baseball right now. That is high praise. Uh, we have to talk about Nolan Arenado. Yes. Right. Nolan Arenado. Uh, I think he gets overlooked for a lot of reasons. Obviously, he plays a course field. So anytime you put up numbers at course field, people are going to think, well, he's a product of, of course field. And I also think that just having Manny Machado at his position, too, kind of outshines him a little bit because Machado is amazing. But Nolan Arenado, he is really – he's probably one of the five best players in baseball. You could make that case. I mean, that's that's what I'm saying. I think right now you you can make that case. And I'll admit that I was on the uh, Nolan Arenado might be a little overrated train last offseason because he did – he had 42 home runs last year, but he had 323 OBP. And in Coors Field, that's for, – for a quote-unquote star player, that's – not good, no. but he has overhauled his approach this year. He, he has. Well, well, first of all, on the Coors Field thing, the year before he had 18 home runs, 16 at home. So, okay, Coors Field creation. Last year, he had 20 home runs at home and 22 on the road. So he's actually changed that. This year, it's, it's five and six, so it's almost split uh, exactly. But you're right, he has changed his approach, and in exactly the way you want uh, someone to change their approach, you just stop swinging at, at bad balls. Uh, we have an outside-the-zone swing percentage. So a couple years ago, it was 42%, then 38%, 38%. This year, it's down to 30%. He just has not uh, gone after as many balls. He actually hasn't gone after uh, as many balls overall. His swing percentage is down. But he's hitting the ball. Uh, he's hitting fewer of the balls outside the zone, and that's such a huge deal. We've talked about this a couple of times. I think last year, it was something like exit velocity of 91 miles an hour for guys who hit strikes and 82 when you don't, right? And that's the difference between being a good hitter and a poor hitter. And when you look at what he's done with that, his fly ball percentage keeps going up each year, uh, starting from 2014, from 42% to 44% to 52%. His pop-up percentage has dropped, right? And if you look at his uh, his exit velocity, we only have that for two years. Last year, 91.6 miles an hour. This year, 93.5 miles an hour. Sitting the ball almost 20 feet harder on average, and he's pulling it more. And just about all of his 81 career home runs have been to the pull field. So the upshot here is stop swinging at bad balls, hit the ball harder, hit the ball more to your pull field, and success will happen. And I don't think that that is just a Coors Field uh, situation. Certainly not. I think he's now definitely, you know, put himself into the, you know, true superstar category. And you mentioned Machado, but as we've discussed, the crop of third baseman right now is amazing. So it's, he, he, you could also group him in. There's Chris Bryant, Josh Donaldson. You know, it's just like an endless list of, of great players. So it's almost hard. It's hard to rank them. But he, you could, you could certainly debate him against Machado at number one. I'd argue that Machado should be a shortstop. Separate well, conversation. <laughs> well, I remember I, I did the, the top ten shows at MLB Network in the offseason, and I kept flip-flopping Machado and, uh, and Arenado because I found them to be very similar players, right? Similar ages, similar offensive profiles. Now Machado has obviously just got, gone crazy so far this year. But they're also very similar on defense, which is to say they're both stellar defensive third baseman. And you remember uh, the reports when, when Arenado was coming up. They weren't necessarily glowing about his glove. And he's turned into not, a just, not just a good third baseman. He's an elite one. I think he's led in defensive runs saved over the last three years. Yeah, he sort of had a year in the minors. I don't really know. where There were some questions about makeup, to be honest with you. But he's put all that behind him. He's yeah. now it's just like – it's just been in this – 
an ascent for him. Every year, it's like he's getting a little bit better, and now we're seeing peak Nolan Arenado, I guess. I can't wait to see what happens when uh, the trade rumors start to pop up for him. Probably not this year, but next year, you could see that happening, maybe. Yeah. Um, we mentioned Chris Bryant. We did. The Cubs? The Chicago Cubs. Here's the thing about the Cubs. Uh, I predicted that they would win the World Series. I think you probably did, too. Uh, everybody predicted they'd win the World Series because they were clearly the best team. And I'm concerned we underrated the Cubs, right? Yeah, I, I saw a tweet, I think, just before I came in here. I'm going to butcher it slightly, but this is basically just a bit from Ken Tremendous, which is like uh, uh, Ken Tremendous, a.k.a. Michael Shore, um, Fire Joe Morgan, et cetera, Parks and Rec, um, that their run differential, I think, is like 92 now. And the difference between them and the second team is 43 runs. And that 43 runs is better than the second team or whatever. It's something like that. So after sweeping the Pirates today, uh, they're actually at 93. All right. Five teams don't even have 93 runs scored. Right. They're 93 runs better than what they've allowed. And other teams haven't even scored 93 runs yet. There are 147 runs at the time of this taping where they've already played today above the last place run differential team, which is the tie between the Braves and the Reds. It's, it's the beginning of May, 147 runs. It's absurd. And yeah, I know those teams aren't great this year, but still. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's starting to have, I mean, they went in, you know, they, they had this, that series against the Cubs this week, and it was like, oh, this is going to be the big, oh, I mean, Pirates. like the Pirates, this is yeah. going to be the big series. And they, and they just like, and they just swept them, they didn't just sweep them, they just like. They rolled them. They rolled them. And the Pirates are good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're starting to have kind of that 98 Yankees, 95 Indians, 86 Mets kind of vibe where it's just like, we're just better than and, everyone. And don't forget, Schwarber got hurt and he's out for the year. Hayward has really done nothing. Addison Russell hasn't really done very much. Jorge Soler has been kind of disappointing. They're not exactly firing on all cylinders yet. And they're still yeah, crushing no, it's, everybody. It's a, it's, a, it's a ridiculous team. I and mean, they're going to play the Nats four-game series starting tomorrow, which I think is gonna be, should be a really interesting series. But I think from a, from a talent and depth standpoint, uh, they're, a cut up, they're a cut above the Nats. Right. And, and so one of the guys who's carrying them on offense uh, is Dexter Fowler, who's like, I think so far has been the best player in baseball. Well, Unlikely to stand exactly. up. Exactly. So it's your point about uh, Jason Hayward. I'm guessing those two things will sort of, those two guys will probably balance out. I'll probably balance out. But we got to talk about Fowler because one of my favorite tools that StackCast has been able to do for us is to look at outfield positioning. And last year we talked about how Dexter Fowler was the shallowest outfielder tied with Adam Jones at 299 feet. And, you know, Dexter Fowler has always been one of those guys where he passes the eye test, right? He looks like a good outfielder, and the metrics have always hated him. They always think he's below average. And a big part of the reason for that is he's been so shallow. Uh, he even said that in Colorado they taught him to play shallow. And what happens is if the ball goes over your head for a double or a triple, that damages you more in the rankings than if it falls in front of you for a single. It makes obvious sense. So Joe Madden this winter says, I want my guys to play deeper. I don't want that to happen anymore. Dexter Fowler has pushed himself back 18 feet deeper. It's the, it's the biggest difference of any center fielder in baseball so far. Not that you can do much with defensive metrics in, in five weeks. He's actually been a plus center fielder because he's, I think, only had one ball go over his head. It's a pretty interesting start. But the, the, to me, in some ways, the most fascinating thing about this data is that on the flip side, the player who's playing more shallow than anyone else is Andrew McCutcheon on possibly the most analytic, from a defensive standpoint, at an analytically progressive Yes. Well, I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all thing. I think for the Pirates, they looked at their, their pitching staff as an extreme ground ball pitching staff. And so I think what they're seeing is that even the balls they hit in the air don't go as far, so they want to cut off more of those singles. McCutcheon really hasn't looked very good on defense so far this year. I don't know if this has anything to do with it. Maybe he's just not used to it. But uh, it's interesting to see how you know those two teams, they're both very analytical, can attack this from two very different ways. It's most interestingly that now we can actually look at it and not just kind of eyeball it and say, oh, yeah, this is real, this is happening. Um, so, yeah, Chicago Cubs, best team in baseball. We'll get a test this weekend, I guess, the Nats, a test. 
quote unquote. Should Arietta on Sunday Night Baseball, that should be fun. That should be pretty good. At, right before we came in here, they, the Nationals were just destroying the Royals. It was like 13-2 last I looked. So Yeah, early on, the Nationals had basically been beating up on the bad teams, but now they've had, they, um, who did they beat over the weekend? The Nationals? Uh, they swept someone good. Yeah. Now, the Cardinals, pretty good. Yeah. They swept the Cardinals, and now they're going to take two or three from the, uh, and probably could, should have swept the Royals, if not for uh, Papelbon, uh giving up a cheap save last night. Yeah, well, it's going to be interesting because other than Harper, the Nationals really have not hit very well, but their pitching's been outstanding, and you're right. Daniel Murphy would beg to differ. Daniel Murphy, oh my God, Daniel Murphy's been amazing. We talked about him, I think, two weeks ago. Thank God for Mets fans that Neil Walker has been crushing the ball because Daniel Murphy has almost kept up that historic run. Uh, Four hits today, four hits at, today? At, least at least, and counting. <laughs> yeah, great. Daniel Murphy, superstar, apparently, which is a thing you can do at his age. Uh, so anyway, that's been the podcast. Thanks to our guest, Ben Lindbergh. From 538, who has just written with Sam Miller, the only rule is it has to work. It's very cool. Please go out and look for it. I'm Mike Petriello. He's Matt Myers. We will catch you next week on the MLB.com StatCast podcast. Okay. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.